Hello and welcome to Revolution 22's podcast. We are a church from the downtown area of Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today as we listen to God's word from the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph. We pray that the Lord will draw us to him as we find ourselves in the story of God amidst suffering. Um, yeah, you guys can grab a seat. This last week, Jonathan and I were talking. Um, he, was, he was talking about how 20 years ago uh, to this Sunday is, is September 11th, obviously the tragedy that happened in New York and, and the surrounding areas. And he was talking about how, what his perspective was from India at the time, because he wasn't here, and just said, like, was it true? Like, did the, did the churches fill up in droves after September 11th? After September 11th? Did there, were the churches really full of a lot of people? And he's talking about, yeah, a lot of people came because a tragedy will always kind of cause people to look at things differently in their life. Last week, we asked you as a church to, to not be here, to not come on Sunday, but to spend time being intentional with your neighbors, to, to go and, and, and just be in relationship with your neighbors, whether that was serving them in a specific way or just having a meal with them, getting to know them for the first time. And as we look at, at all the different ways that God will make himself known, we, we know that a tragedy can do it, but also I think the day in and day out intentionality of us as followers of Jesus, just being intentional with people in our lives. See, it doesn't take a, a tragedy for us to know that, that we need the hope of Jesus. In fact, all of us feel that weight every single day, no matter where we are with our walk with the Lord, especially those that follow the Lord. So thank you to those that spent um, some time over this last couple of weeks to just be intentional with their neighbors, if that was just a meal or just to, to get to know them or, or serve them in some way. And I, I pray and hope that you would continue to be intentional with your neighbors and the people that God has around you because he has placed you to be on mission. If you're still breathing and you are his and you are on mission to, to be his light and his salt to this world. So let me pray for us. Father, um, we thank you for making yourself known through tragedy and through the simple small things. Thank you for uh, those that were intentional here over the last couple of weeks to get to know the people that you've placed them around. God, I pray for favor. I pray that you would give them the ability to, to not only love on them in just proximity, but also to love on them with the, the truth of your words and the hope of Jesus Christ. And God, for those that, that, that are grieving today over loss of those 21 years, God, we just pray that you continue to comfort and to draw them closer to you. Um, we thank you for the ability to be your church, and we know that this is, a, this is not home, this world is not home, and so we ask, Lord, that you would help us to, to be intentional, more intentional with every breath we have, um, to, to make, uh, to make Jesus, Jesus Christ known, to bring glory to you and you alone in everything we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as we get into the word, we've been in the life of Joseph through Genesis for a while now. I would encourage you to go back and listen to it as we are covering a lot of scripture today. In fact, we're doing two, two and a half chapters. I'm not going to cover them thoroughly, I promise. Uh, but we're going to do it over two weeks. This is one of the times that I really wish that we didn't have like a service and then waited a week and then had a service. I wish we could just stay together for a couple hours and really hammer it out. So today's going to feel a little incomplete without next week. So I'm, I'm sorry for that. But without that, let's jump in. Have you guys ever had uh, done something that you wished you could have a do-over? Like you've ever done something wrong besides Jeremy in the back? Okay, a few of you, like you've done, so, I've never done it. So what's it like? No, I'm just kidding. So have you ever done something like so wrong, like you knew it was wrong or sin? You're like, oh, I just wish I hadn't 
done that? Like, has that ever happened? Has everyone experienced that to some degree? Give me a nod if you're awake even. Okay, great. Perfect. Okay. So, so you've, you've experienced that. Well, when I first met Jen and my wife, and we've now been married for almost 17 years, but, but one of the, the, the joys, the fine print to our marriage was that I inherited a miniature pincher. So I don't know if you've ever seen a miniature pincher. It's like a rat. It's about as useful as, it's, it's as useful as a cat, which I'm sorry if you're a cat person, but like, sorry, Emily, I know that's offensive to you, but, um, so this little miniature pincher, and I, I mean, I'll be honest, her name was Anaya. I was not excited about that, but I was excited about Jen, so you know, you get, you get it all, right? So I got the little miniature pincher, and I don't know, we're maybe a year, two years married, not even two years married, and I'm doing, as a volunteer, I'm doing this event for this church early on, on a Sunday, so at like 6.15, I'm, I'm getting up to, to go and uh, do this event, so I'm loading a barbecue and all sorts of stuff, they're getting ready. And as I pull out my, my, my truck with the trailer and I'm backing out, all of a sudden I see that little rat dog take off out the cul-de-sac, just gone. I'm like, Anaya, what the? Okay, so then I spend the next, I don't know, 15 minutes driving around. Have you guys ever done this before? You're chasing a dog, putting it apart, getting out, and then realizing the dog can outrun you. So then you get back in the car and then, and I'm trying to be as quiet like, Anaya, because it's 6.15 on Sunday. I don't want to make all my neighbors really, really upset. And so I'm chasing this dog around. I go out our cul-de-sac all the way around the block. And then I come back into the cul-de-sac and she runs right back through the fence underneath. Where I'm like, oh no, that dog is, that dog is in trouble. And so I always love hearing Jen tell this story because the way she describes how I enter into the house, I, I must be like an eight foot Yeti because like, oh, like she, she like says, that's what I sound like. I just think it's because she was asleep still. And so so I go in the back, get, get a knife from the back door, kind of put a rock in front of that, that fence so she can't get out again because she's a little rat and they can get out of anything. And, um, and then this is one of the reasons why I dislike little dogs, okay? So I, I pick her up and it's like naughty. Like, I mean, how do you like, like, how do you like flick it? Like, what do you do with a little dog? Like, I feel like if I hit it too hard, it's going to die, you know? Like, so, I, so I'm bad dog. Bad dog, and I walk into our room. At this time, we kept the kennel, which was probably a shoebox, um, in our in our in our bedroom, in our master bedroom. And Jen's still asleep, or, or she's waking up because of the yeti running down the stairs, right? And so I, I come in. I'm like, "No, I have bad dog," and throw her in there and close it up. And oh, that's so frustrating. And I go outside. And I'm like, "I gotta go do Jesus stuff," you know. And so I'm like, I run outside and I get in my truck and I start go to start. Oh, there's no keys. So I come back inside. I'm like, "Where are my keys?" And I see and I and I see Jen on the bed. It's okay. It's okay. And I'm not going to lie, guys. I was like, what are you doing? We can never have kids if we're not on the same page. You know, like I'm ready to like come unleashed on her, right? And she's like, she's having a seizure. And I was like, oh, no. Like I found out, just so you guys know, that this dog is like would have a seizure just sitting on a, on a heating vent for too long, okay? So like that was the fine print that no one told me. But she hadn't had a seizure yet until I chased her around the block and flicked her nose or whatever I did. And she was having a seizure and I just felt horrible. Like I felt like the worst person in the world. One for like yelling at Jen, like the dog was having a seizure. And so she got it out of the kennel because she didn't know what was going on and um, left for the church event to go do Jesus stuff, you know, and then told one person. And then it was like dubbed, give your dog a seizure day in honor of Bren. So like they did not let me have it down. And so I spent like the next, I don't know, six hours doing the, you know, the church stuff and being like all for Jesus. Yeah, cool. And so I did all that. And then I was coming home and this is like this is just so perplexing. I'm coming home, and, and I'm getting home, and you will not believe who was at the front door, jumping up and down, shaking her butt, excited, besides Jen. <laughs> Doesn't happen for you guys? It's our marriage. Sorry. It's the way it is. That little rat dog. 
is jumping up and down, excited to see me. And I'm like, wait a second. Like, I would have expected her to, like, cower and run from me or, you know, like, growl at me or, you know, whatever little rat dogs do that, like, they try to do. I would have expected anything or even just to, to keep her distance. But no, she's jumping up and down, excited to see me and just wants to be with me. And um, that was really perplexing to me. Now, either this seizure jogged her memory <laughs> or she did something that I think we all struggle to do on a regular basis. She just extended me a whole lot of grace. See, I didn't, I didn't deserve. Now, and, and again, I, I'm going to talk about grace not from the standpoint of a dog, so please hear me on that, okay? Like, I'm not saying that we all need to be like a dog and be gracious, no. But, but I didn't deserve her to really, like, want to be near me. I didn't deserve really her to want to have any relationship with me. And she didn't only not, like, growl at me and bite my hand, which would have made sense. She instead wanted to just be in relationship with me again. Despite the way I treated her, despite the way I felt about her, as you can hear in my tone, um, she just did that. And as we're going to work through today's text, um, I think we're going to talk together today about grace. And, and again, I, I got to warn you, it's a, it's a little, it's a cliffhanger. It's a little unfinished at the end of today. But, but what I wanted to argue with you guys today or contend or plead with you is that grace really is only grace if it's undeserved. And as simple as a, as a, as a definition as that is, it literally grace is undeserved favor. Like, like, I get that. But as simple as a definition of that is, I think that many of us, we struggle with grace. And we can see such a profound and beautiful picture of it in the life of Joseph today. And so that's where we'll pick up today. And then we'll, um, we'll be here again next week. Uh, so just a couple contexts. So they, the brothers went back home said, hey, dad, they found the money in their, their sacks. They're like, dad, we can't go back without Benjamin. And dad's like, ain't going to send Benjamin. We're all going to die here because I will not let my favorite son go. And so then they spend this time. And we don't know. It's interesting. This narrative leaves a lot of details out that, that aren't there. Like, what was happening with Simeon this whole time? We get nothing other than he's just released at some point. What, like, how, how often were the other nine brothers having a conversation with dad about this situation, trying to get help? We know as we read a little bit further that it was almost at minimum a year from the first time they went because Judah even says we could have gone back, gone there and been back twice now to get food. So that tells us that, that Judah and Jacob and all of his family in, in Canaan are starving. They're, they're rationing food. They're spending their time working out life there at the bare minimum as they possibly can because they can't go to Egypt without Benjamin and Jacob or Israel, their dad, will not send Benjamin. And so... We know that, that, that Joseph knows his brother's alive, thinks that Benjamin's alive, thinks that Jacob's alive. He's basing that off of what he's heard from his 10 brothers. Simeon's in jail, and he sent them off. And so that's, that's kind of where this picks up in 43. And it talks about the, the, the famine being even more severe. And, and dad's like, hey, go get some food. Go buy us, just go buy us a little food. It, it, the way that he says it, it's almost like he knows that he's the reason they haven't gone to buy food. Before, he's like, go, stop staring at each other and go get food. This time, he's like, hey, head to Egypt and buy us a little food, okay? Just go do that. And Judah, who, who is the, apparently the spokesperson of the family, Reuben, the, the firstborn, is not, Simeon's gone, but Judah's the one that's, that's, that's talking for everything. And so Judah responds, Dad, we can't go. Remember we said we can't go because he said he wants to see someone with a brother, and if the brother doesn't have it, like, without this brother, we're spies, and then we'll all be in prison, and then, Dad, you'll be here with, with all our wives and our kids and all of us gone, and you and Benjamin. Like, that's, that's not going to work. They're not going to send us, and you'll still have no food. 
And so his dad's like, why? Why did you tell him about this? And then Judah's recanting, like, well, this is why. He asked about brothers. How did we know? We did not know. And Judah's like, and, and literally Jacob's like, why didn't you just lie to him? He doesn't say that, but that's essentially how he's reading it. Like, why wouldn't you just deceive him? Remember Jacob, the deceiver. Why did you tell him? He's like, because he asked us and we were honest. And so he goes on and says that then finally in verse 11 of 43, their father says, fine, if you must go, then do this. And he gives him this whole regimen of like, hey, this worked with my brother Esau when we were getting together, back together. I kept sending gift upon gift upon gift upon gift in hopes that he would receive me. I would buy it this way. So he tells his sons, okay, take the money that you had for the first grain, then take the money that you got on top of that, and then let's take some more money to buy more grain. Let's take it all back, and then at, let's go to the storage shed. Let's get out the myrrh and the spices, anything that we got that's really worth value, and let's send that as a gift. And hopefully he will give you mercy. Hopefully he will deal, deal kindly with you. And so the brothers get up. The nine of them start heading off to Egypt with Benjamin now. So there's 10 of them, but Simeon's still in prison in Egypt. And they start making their way to to uh, Egypt. In verse 16, it says this of chapter 43. It says, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. Now, it says, and the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our stacks the first time that we were brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. Okay, so, so look at this. This is interesting. The first time that everything that bad was happening to him is because of what they did to Joseph. This time, what everything that's bad is happening is because they had the money and they didn't do it. So, so they continue, they're trying to blame something else. But what's funny is they show up to the, you know, to the market to get the governor. This would be like us going to Winco and, and the checker being like, oh, you, you can't buy your groceries here. You're going to go buy it at so-and-so's house. First, you're going to eat a meal there. And then we'll deal with that. And what's interesting is, is these brothers are freaked out by this. Like, what, what does this mean? Why is he doing this? They're going to they're gonna do all this stuff. And so we see, so they went up to the steward of Joseph's house, verse 19 of 43, and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. And listen, this is, this is amazing. The steward says this. This isn't Joseph. The steward says, he replies, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Shalom. It's okay. In their language, shalom. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. And then he brings Simeon out to them. Now, can you... Just for a moment, imagine this, okay? You showed up to get food. You're afraid that you're spies. You're like, you're watching for like Benjamin to not stub his toe because you know how dad would be so mad. So you're like, you're coddling him the whole way to make sure he gets there safely. Anyone looking at him, you're like, don't look at Benjamin, like cover him up. They've got everything in this place. And then they come to the steward and they're like, we're in trouble. And then the steward of the governor starts talking to them about their God and how their God is taking care of them. I don't have time to cover this, but this is just really important for us to see. Joseph operated in such a way in Egypt, faithful to God, that his stewards were even giving God the credit of things. His stewards, now we don't know if Joseph was telling him his whole plan, but they were all taking part in what Joseph was asking them to do. And the stewards knew who put the money back in. He's giving God the credit. I just, I love that. I love that. 
So he says, peace to you. Then he brings Simeon out to him. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and we had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they were going to eat bread there. Now, Joseph, so they, so they were expecting to be treated and questioned as spies, being like, see, Benjamin's here. We told you we weren't spies. Can we buy some more food? And instead, they're brought into the governor's house. Their feet are cleaned. Their hands are washed. Their, their donkeys are fed. And they're going to eat a meal with this governor? This feels really different. This feels weird. In fact, they were on their, 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 toe, their toes, their heels last time they met with this guy. He was questioning all kinds of things. And so here they are in this home getting ready for him. And so they're preparing the myrrh and making it all pretty and like putting it in the spot. Like here's a gift to, to, to tell him we love him. And so, so they come in and, and they see that, you know, he's, he asks, how's, 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 how's your father? And like, your servant, my father, is, your servant, our father is, is, is fine. Is this Benjamin? And Joseph has moved to a spot where once he sees Benjamin lift his eyes up, he can't see him, moves, leaves the room, weeps a little bit, covers, washes his face and comes back in. And then he says, okay, let's eat. And what they do is they separate the Egyptian, the, uh, Joseph and his table separate from the Hebrews because they couldn't eat together. And so here they are, they're separated and they're in this place and they sit down in their birth order. You got Reuben all the way down to Benjamin in order. And so they're looking at each other like, this is weird. That's a lucky guess. Weird. And then food starts coming out. They're like, oh, here's your steak and potatoes or whatever. It's probably not steak and potatoes. You get what I'm saying. Here's, here's your food, right? And, and they start doing this and they give this food. And again, remember, these, these men, maybe, maybe Simeon was even maybe a little bit better fed. We don't know how he was treated in, in the dungeon underneath Joseph's charge. But the rest of them, they're hungry. They've been rationing. They've been minimizing. They're hungry. And so all of a sudden, this feast is put out in front of them. And it's like, that's amazing. And then it's put out in front of Simeon and then Judah. And it just kind of works. It's all the way down. And then it comes to Benjamin. And they're like, and here's some. And here's some more. And here's some more. And I mean, could you imagine? Like, literally, it says five times. No one person needs to eat five times of a meal plate. Like, like this is like falling off of his plate. Like, it's, it's ridiculous. You'd look over and be like, what? Is, is a servant? Like, is there something wrong with that person? but it's, it's coming from Joseph's table, going into theirs, onto their table and their plates. It's showing favor. And so this would be a scene as favor. So look what Joseph's doing. He's favoring one brother again. So now, now he's, he's set up this perfect test, creating everything. Like put, put it so everyone knows that, that, that Benjamin's favored. Joseph had to have known that Benjamin was still being favored by dad because he came the second time because he knew that that's what dad would do with him. So he's like, he's, he's favoring him everything. They have this huge meal. Verse 34 says, and they drank and they were merry with him, which actually I think means intoxication. I don't think that's a prescriptive thing in scripture telling us to get drunk. It's just telling us that they drank a lot and were very merry and enjoyed themselves. And so here you have this thing. They were expecting to come and be questioned as spies. And instead they had this big meal and their little brother got more food than he knows. What, I mean, like, is he, can I get a to-go box? Like, this is not gonna work here. Food upon food upon food, showing favor to him. So then Joseph tells his servants in, in, in 44, he commands them to, to fill their, their things with grain and put their money back in their sack. And then he says, put my cup of divination into, into, the, into Benjamin's bag. Now, I know this is, this, this is history. This is our narrative. This is the way it is. I just feel like if I were those guys, I would have looked in my sack before I left. I don't, I don't know. I feel like that would have been like a, hey, maybe we should look this time and see what happens. Like, 
None of them look, and they head off, and then the steward goes chasing after them, and they say, hey, you've stolen the cup of divination. Now, the cup of divination would have had oils and waters, and there would have been all kinds of ceremonies that they would have done through the, 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 the Egyptian rules. There was a absolute like an abomination of some form of it for Egyptians and another abomination for some form of the Hebrews, and there was like one kind of in the middle that they would assume is okay. I don't think the point in this text is to say that, that Joseph was practicing this. The point is this is a cup that's really hard to replace. It's his favorite cup. You know, like you moms that like you got your coffee cup, but you're mad when us husbands take it, right, in the morning. It's like anger. Like that's hard to replace, right? He's, he's got that cup. And so they, they catch up to him and they overtake him. And the brothers are like, they do something for the first time in this narrative that's never been able to be done. We didn't do this. We're innocent and we're honest. And it's actually the truth. And for the first time, they can say, we didn't do this. It's true. We didn't do this. They can feel like, oh man, so Judah's like feeling confident. Like, not only did we not do this, but if it is one of us, shoot, you can have that person. He can be your slave forever. There's no way any one of us would do this. Look at the confidence that comes from not carrying that darkness like we talked about it two weeks ago. We didn't do it. It's totally fine. And then he goes on and says, okay, well, let's find out who has it. Whoever has it, they will be your servant forever. And so verse 10 um, he said, let it be as you say. And whoever is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. So then each man lowers his sack and doesn't say anything in the narrative, but like, oh, look, the money's there again. Ah, I should have looked. You know, like, that's not good. And each one has the money in their sack, and they get to it. And each one, as it's going, like, Reuben's like, whew. See me, whew. Okay, Judah, not me. Everything's good to go. And they're like, like are they getting excited? Like, yeah, we're free. I knew it. I told you so. And then Benjamin's tr- sack opens. And the response is, is that every single one of them are, are lost. They're like, oh, no. They, tore, they tear their clothes. This is a deep weeping, a deep grieving. They're upset like this can't be. And so they jump on their donkeys, and they head back to Joseph's house with a steward. And then they come in in 44, and they come before Joseph. And they say, he's the one that, so he's the one that stole, so be there. And they're like, no, 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 keep all of us. Do this. And he's like, far be it from me for to do that. That's not fair. Only one of you stole the cup. And then Judah, silent Judah, the Judah that, that was like, hey, I got an idea. Let's sell our brother to the Ishmaelites. This Judah stands up. And we're going to talk more about him next week. He stands up and gives a long speech of pleading for his brother's life. You can't do this. He's, 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 one of, he's the only one left of two to our dad's favorite mom or to our dad's favorite wife. To, like he's, he's it. The other one's gone. And we, if you take him, if you take him, if we go back home without him, our dad will surely die. Our dad will surely die. If you go home, if we go home without him, our dad will surely die. And so Judah says, look, take me. Take me in place. I gave this vow to my dad. I said, I would bring him back. You can take me instead of keeping him. I will be your servant for the rest of my life and you can send all of them home. So Judah steps in and says that. And it's too much. It's too much for Joseph. It's too much. So he says, get out of here. Sends everyone out, except for the brothers. So all of his servants head out, and he starts crying so loud that all the servants he just kicked out heard, and Pharaoh's house, which is close to him now, which must be, they all heard. He weeps. And then he says this in verse 45, 4 through 11. So Joseph says to the brothers, come near to me, please. Now, now imagine, imagine this scenario. Imagine the situation of all the, the wonderful movies of vengeance and like justice and all the things that we want. It, it seems like this is the perfect time for Joseph to just to keep going. All right, who should I put into prison this time? 
Okay, what can I do to make them own this some more? Like, they're really struggling. Look at Judah's like pleading, and he's even willing to give his own life up. The same guy that said out of his mouth when I pleaded with him from the pit, don't do anything this, said, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites for a few pieces of silver. He created the exact situation for them. Here they had an opportunity to send the favored son packing and go home like they did with Joseph. The favorite son's gone. Look, they could just go home and say, look, he took him. We had no option. Benjamin stole a cup. And so he took him and we couldn't do it. We can go home with our grain. We can live our life without any more of these favorite sons. And the brothers don't do that this time. Judah instead stands up and says, no, take me instead of them, instead of him. And Joseph says, come near to me. Now, you're already spinning a little bit in your head if you're these brothers. Simeon, like, he's just like happy to be out of prison. Like, what's going on here? Like, this is great. But you're already spinning a little bit. Like we just ate this huge meal. You drank a little bit too much. And then all of a sudden, now Benjamin, why would, why would you steal the cup? Like, did they fight with Benjamin? Like, Benjamin, you can't do that. But they had to see the money in their sacks. Their, their heads are real. They don't get it. Why did we have this meal? Why did he do these things? Only to have this happen again. What is happening? What we don't see them doing is saying, this is all because of what happened to our brother. We see him just saying, no, take me. Take me instead. I'll do it. I'll stay. Go. And Joseph says, come near to me, please. And they came near. So now, remember, the whole time he had been speaking to them through a translator. So he says to them in their language, come near to me. So now, now they got to be rethinking, oh, what else did we say in front of this dude? He understands our language. Uh-oh. I knew you shouldn't have been saying that stuff at the table. They're like playing the dinner, dinner conversation over. You know, Simeon, when you had too many drinks? No, sorry. He says, come close to me. He says, I'm your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. I'm your brother, you sold me. Don't be worried about it. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me, Yahweh sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you, you who sent me here, but God. He has made a father to Pharaoh. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, and your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Short answer, translation, he says, hey, don't worry about it. Let's be in relationship again. And what's interesting is, is nowhere in this text do you see his brothers any moment going, I am so sorry for what we did. Will you please forgive me? We never see him saying that. In fact, we see that they, even when Jacob comes and dies later on, we see that they still don't believe that Joseph is actually extending grace to them. They think once he's gone, it was only because of his dad. Joseph doesn't just give them what they deserve or not give them what they deserve. He gives them more than that. He brings them into relationship. He goes on and says, look, think about this. this is a, it's a famine. Egyptians everywhere. And he's saying, hey, I want all of you to come live in this land right here with me and we're gonna take care of you. And Pharaoh hears about it. We'll talk about it in the coming weeks. And he gives them more than what he was even recommending. Like, don't even bring herds. We'll just give you new herds. Like, that would have been upsetting to a lot of Egyptians. <laughs> Joseph doesn't just say, hey, I'm going to feed you and I'm going to forgive you and move on. He says, no, 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 I want you to come near to me. Joseph extends them undeserved favor. He gives them a whole 
lot of grace. What would you have done? I mean, I know, I know what I would have done in this situation. If I'm honest, I would have played games a lot longer and they still would have been in prison. But what, what would you have done? See, I, I think many of us, we have this view about grace. We like the idea of grace being given to someone who's good and discipline or consequences coming to someone who's bad. We like when it's deserved, but we don't like when it's undeserved. In fact, we're a lot like Jonah. I don't want to go tell them that because you're a forgiving God. And they'll probably forget. They'll probably ask for forgiveness. They'll repent. What would you have done? If this were a movie of your life, it could have gone many different ways. Which, which way has it gone? When you've been wronged by someone, deeply wounded by someone, what, what's your posture towards them? Is it one of, I want them to pay for what they did? Is it one of, I want to make sure that they hurt? I want to celebrate when they struggle? Or is it one of, I genuinely want to extend grace to them? I want to be in relationship with them, even if that means that relationship has to look drastically different with healthy boundaries. I'm not saying that. But what what would you have done? How would you have responded? Which ending do you think God would want? When your work, or your spouse, or your coworker, or your boss... Which ending? Is it the one where you get to exact revenge? Or is it the one where someone gets what is completely undeserved? Joseph shows us this really profound, beautiful expression of grace to his brothers. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful display of it because, again, like I said, I'm sure many of you have been very wrong, but Joseph was, I mean, we all know, like there's not even like a, There's not even a way we can try and justify what happened to Joseph by his brothers and say it was okay. Joseph just sees that what happens to him had nothing to do with what his brothers were doing, but God was at work in his story, which is what we'll talk about more next week. But see, the the, the reason and where I want to kind of land today is the reason why we struggle with grace is because we have a couple preconceived notions that mess up our understanding of grace. And so I want to just, I want to dig into these two questions, okay? How do we view God's grace towards us and then with whom are we to be gracious? Whom are we to give grace to? And so the first thing we have to do is we have to settle on the fact that there's a couple of things that I think I've seen over a while in my own life and the life of others that we have these propensities when it comes to grace. The first side is we tend to, those that profess to follow Jesus, those that have given their life to Jesus, have surrendered to the, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the death, burial, and the resurrection. You've given it said, I am a follower of Jesus. We tend to walk with a lot of guilt. We tend to walk with a lot of shame on some of the things that we still do or struggle with. We tend to, we tend to believe the lie that, that man, I, I know I asked God for forgiveness of this, this time and then that time and then that time, and I just don't know if he can do it again. And we start questioning the finished, the completed work of Jesus Christ. And so we walk around saying, I just don't know if he could forgive me. See, the reason why that's an issue with grace is grace is undeserved. <laughs> you don't deserve it. So, so when we start operating with what I've done isn't deserving of his grace. Well, good. Grace is only truly grace when it's undeserved. And so the first thing we have to wrestle through in our own hearts is, is the idea of the guilt that we, haven't, we have not let Jesus Christ pay for all that he says he has paid for. It is done. It is, it is not like you're like, you figured out the one sin. He's like, ah, oh, I forgot that one. Should have gone to the cross for that one. No, he... he it says in Ephesians 1, 7, 8, in him we have redemption through 
his blood, not our work, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace, not based on what we did, which he lavished upon us, which he has poured out over and over like the, like the plate of Benjamin, like it's just falling off and around. Like it just, there's so much, it just keeps coming. It's more than enough grace for us. And it's not something that you can earn. So when you struggle, it's like, what if I sin in the same thing once more? It's covered. What about, what about the, the murderers and the thieves or the terrorists? Like, could they ever experience it? Yeah, it's, it's covered in God's grace. There is, there is no sense of evil that we can think up that Jesus Christ, death on the cross, can't pay for. So then when we wrestle and walk in guilt, we're, we're making small and light that which Jesus did. You're, you're doing the very thing that the, the, the author of Hebrews is saying, shall Jesus go die again then? Like, because it wasn't enough? No, he, there may be consequences to a lot of our actions, but it does not mean if consequences are present that grace isn't. You might live with a life of pain and struggle and trauma based on yours or someone else's sins, but that does not mean his grace has not been lavished upon you if you are his. The second problem we have is we, we work, we, we, we struggle with the grace in, in seeing it as um, an undeserved thing, so we, we try to earn grace. And the Apostle Paul speaks, I mean, a lot about this. But we try to earn grace in the idea of, um, man, I, I, uh, I got to do this, this, or this, so that way he will forgive me. Or because you're forgiving me, now I'm going to do this, this, or this. No, it's because we are his, we do this, this, or this. We were created for the good works beforehand. We do them by his strength. We do them out of a loving relationship with him. Not out of a sense of duty or that we have to do it or else he might smite us. No, we, we serve and we do the works. We walk in the works that God has given us to walk in based on the fact that he has already clothed us in his righteousness. And we do it by his spirit's power. So we can't earn grace. I'm not suggesting that we go on and keep sinning. Romans 6, 1 tells us like, no, you can't keep sinning to earn more grace. Like it doesn't matter what you do. No, but we, we, we don't earn it. It was, it was done and completed and accomplished and planned and perfected in Jesus Christ alone. And he has drawn us to him. He has saved us. He has clothed us. We don't earn it. I didn't, it, it wasn't because I could, oh, Bren, you're going to do a bunch for my kingdom, therefore I must save you. No. I'm his because he deemed me to be his. I didn't earn it. So, so then why then after I recognize that I'm undeserved favor, I'm before the Lord because of his grace and what he has done through Jesus Christ, his mercy and grace, mercy that sits underneath grace. It, why in the world then would I start operating after that point as if I need to do something to earn more grace? But you can't earn it. It's undeserved. It's God's work according to his riches. The forgiveness of, by his blood, Forgiveness of our sins. It's, it's, a, it's his work. It's a gift. So then the second question that comes out of this is, well, whom do we give grace to then? And this one's hard. This one's really, really hard. Um, first, I want to I be really clear. 
we don't have time to unpack all this. And like I said, next week we'll add a hope a little bit more clarity to understanding of this because I'm skipping out a lot of parts here. But um, being gracious does not mean um, not being truthful. Uh, John 1, 14 says this. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was the perfect completeness of grace and truth. And so to be gracious with someone doesn't mean that we need to void ourselves of truth. To be, in a, to, be great, to be full of grace and full of truth. It means that when we do truth, we should be doing it with grace. So then who do we show grace to? See, I think Joseph understood God's grace towards himself and therefore could show his brother's grace. Joseph, showed his, Joseph understood God's grace to himself, which in turn made it possible for him to be gracious to his brothers. So what does this mean for me and you? It's a gift to us. It's given to us over and over and over again. But that means that we must be willing to give it over and over and over again. See, I think we need to be just as excited about grace for us as we are as grace from us. I'm not saying we become a doormat. There's still boundaries. But that means that what do you do about the parent that hurt you? or the boss who treats you poorly, or the spouse that cheated on you, or the person that cuts you off, or the person that stabs you, and your friend that stabs you in the back. I'm arguing, contending, pleading with you that, that as someone who has been saved by grace, I should be walking in a way that is willing to be giving undeserving favor to other people. In fact, the grace of God towards me should compel me to be gracious towards others because I know that I don't deserve what he's given me. We need to be as gracious as possible in every situation. I believe this is a gospel issue for us, and I will talk more about that next week. But if you profess to follow Jesus, then you bear the most gracious name in all of history. So how dare we taint it by being ungracious? How dare we be people that would be willing to say that I'm okay operating in an ungracious way as much as I possibly can? while expecting Jesus to forgive me everything and give me and give me and give me. The brothers don't ask for grace. They don't ask for forgiveness. I mean, they're asking for mercy, like, hey, let us go, like, don't do this. But they don't, they don't say, please forgive me for this. They don't seem to do anything other than say that their guilt has found them out. And Joseph extends undeserved f- favor to them, regardless of their actions. If you look at someone and say, will you get, I will give them grace when? I'll give them grace when they do this. Or only when they say this. It's no longer grace, it's a payment. You don't deserve it. Good. We didn't deserve grace. Grace doesn't make sense. I find myself baffled even at times uh, trying to rest in it. So where do we, we go from here? If you're willing to receive grace as undeserved, then we must be willing to give grace as undeserved as well. And again, there's a, there's a whole level of understanding reconciliation and restoration and relationships that, that, that are all kind of weird in this that I don't have time to unpack. But all I'm saying is that we are supposed to be people that are giving unfavored or undeserved, unfavored, unfavored deserved, no, undeserved favor to people.
one of the first things you can do is if you've been living your life as if you had to earn grace or as in his grace was not good enough in walking with guilt, then ask the Father to give you the grace to understand his love for you. Ask the Father to help settle in your heart that you don't need to earn that which he has freely given to you in Jesus Christ. Ask the Father to settle you in recognizing that no matter how how guilty you may feel, how guilty you are, (laughs) his grace is still covering you in this. Second thing is with whom in our life um, do we need to be gracious with? I just want to kind of leave this one in the Spirit's hand. If I've been talking about grace and someone's come to your mind, that might be who you're supposed to start with. If right now you're thinking of someone like, yeah, but I don't know how, and, and maybe there's, maybe there's um, safety reasons why you can't do it, I would encourage you to come to one of us pastors to help walk with that. Maybe this person is, has since passed on, so you're like, I don't even know how to do that process. Again, we'd love to walk with you through it. But right now when I say, with, like, with whom are we supposed to be gracious to? Like, like if, there's a, if there's a specific person or a specific people group that you keep being, I want to see them have justice the way I believe justice should be, then, then most likely that's a good area to start. You know, one of the areas that I struggle to give grace, extend grace the most, actually, this is kind of sad for my day in and day out life, but I struggle to give Christians grace. You know why? Because I say they should know better. And that is, a, that is a heart issue in me. Because when I look at the Lord, I don't look at him going, and he doesn't say, well, Bren, you should know better. He doesn't do that to me, so then why would I do that to others? Why, why do we operate that way? So any way that you're struggling to give grace, put that on the Lord and say, is, is that how he treats me? Is that how he expects it with me? Is that how he works through it with me? And if that's not the case, then let's operate more like Jesus. Giving grace is not a sign of weakness. In fact, giving grace takes extraordinary strength. It's not intuitive. We innately want to only operate in what is deserved. In fact, we like when someone bad gets their payment. And we like when someone good gets it noticed. That's, that's, that's a transaction. That's not grace. Grace says the person that's really, really bad, that doesn't deserve anything, gets good. And that's, that's what Jesus did for us. While I was dead in my trespasses, while you were dead in your trespasses, while you were sinners and dead, he died for you and gave you grace. The way that those of us that profess to follow Christ treat others with grace should be drawing those far from God to God. They should see the way that we are willing to give undeserved favor to others in spite of the way that they've treated us. And that should draw them to a loving father, the Jesus that we are modeling our lives after. Two weeks ago, we didn't take communion. I encouraged you guys to spend some time over the next couple weeks to ask the Lord if there was anything in the darkness that needed to be called to light. We used the shovel and digging out the weeds and the roots idea and said, I want to give you guys a couple weeks to, to ask the Lord to reveal to you that which needs to be dug out. And I got lots of pictures of people pulling weeds, so thank you for that. That was wonderful. But like, I was hoping to hear stories of where God was actually uprooting weeds in your hearts as well. And so I, we didn't take communion. We said, we're going to take some time to give you space to work out your heart. If there's anything that needs to be repented, if there's any darkness in your life that needs to be called to light. So we're going to give you those couple weeks to do that. I realize even as I'm talking about this right now, and we're going to take communion here in just a second, um, 
Some of you right now, you're like, man, I, I actually don't. I'm not a very gracious person. <laughs> I haven't been very gracious at all to my spouse or to my coworker or to this person or this people group or this situation. In fact, I've, I've been the very opposite. I've been like my own king and judge and jury, and I want justice, and I'm acting out on vengeance, and, and it will be mine. Maybe, maybe you need to take some time today before you take communion to, to send a text to call someone. There will be safe people in the prayer room that can talk to you about this. If you're like, man, I don't know how to even begin this conversation, uh, we are glad to. Me and one of the elders would love to walk you through that and help you walk through it. It's not, it's not always easy. And, and you may have done everything you possibly can to be at peace with someone and they may not be receiving it. Then you can rest easy. Know that you've done what the Lord has asked you to do. And so what we're going to do here in a second is we're going to let you guys get up and get communion and it's going to be nice and quiet and awkward in here for a bit other than the pitter-patter of footsteps. Because I want to give you guys space again to, to grab the elements of the Lord. That in fact, to come to the throne. In fact, we used this scripture two weeks ago. It's, it's Hebrews 4.16. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to what? The throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so if you have been able to repent and you've done this work, then I encourage you to come to the throne of grace and say, thank you, Lord. I didn't deserve it. Thank you, Lord. And if you've been here today and you're, you're like, man, I don't know what I believe. Like, I'm not sure I understand who Jesus is. Then I want to I challenge you. I want to encourage you to not make small the grace, the throne of grace that is Jesus Christ's life. If you're here today and you have repented, then I want you to joyfully walk to the sacraments. The same thing that, that Jesus says, his body and his blood being spilled, he endured for the joy that was set beyond it. So let's uh, take some time, quietly, if you will, please, to grab the elements if you want to. If you need to take more time than that and you can't take it or you need more space than I give you, then let me or one of the elders know afterwards during music and we will take it with you when you're ready in the, in the prayer room as well. But I want to give you guys some space. Grab the elements, sit back down here, and we will take communion together. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org or on the Church Center app. We encourage you not to neglect meeting together as believers, and may you continue to love God and love others.